This is a Podfire production. This podcast may include explicit themes or swearing and may not be suitable for children. Before we start today, I want to just have a quick shout out to everyone. Today is National Are You OK Day and it's so important to reach out to anyone and everyone and actually ask the question, are you OK? It's a very important day for me because as a lot of people have done, especially recently, we've lost a few really good people over the last few months due to suicide and depression. A major cause of loss, the biggest cause of loss in the world at the moment. And uh, it's the sort of unknown thing because no one actually talks about it. So do me a favour, not just today, but every day, reach out to someone and ask the question. You never know, you might actually save a life. Are you okay today? Really important for all of us. A big shout out today to Burley Brewing Co. We've come on board to supply us with beer. For some of the podcasts that we do, and obviously to Podfire, the greatest goddamn podcasting hosting platform on the planet. We couldn't do this without you guys. Let's go. G'day guys, welcome to Awesome Humans. I'm your host, Brett McCallum, and we're here to bring you the biggest, brightest humans this amazing planet of ours has to offer. As most of you know, I'm a very proud Australian, and to wear the national coat of arms on your chest and represent this great country of ours is not only an honour, but a privilege that only a rare number of people get to do. Today's Awesome Human is Paul Price, a squash player from who has actually done that. He's represented this great country of ours at the highest level and had the privilege to wear the green and gold. He reached a career-high world ranking of world number four, or potentially number three, we'll talk about that shortly, and was successful 1999 and 2001 in the Australian world team. He's won a bronze medal at the Commonwealth Games in Melbourne and was a British Open finalist. That's an awesome story, that one. Paul's now focused on helping others reach their potential as a coach, a speaker, and entrepreneur in the squash industry with his company Inspired Peak Performance. He's driven to add value to others along with directing them towards their own path and success. This podcast will be full of passion and purpose and we'll go with the flow. You'll get that pun shortly. Anyway, let's get cracking. G'day, Paul. How are you, buddy? Brett, I'm great, man. How are you? Good. Was that a good intro or what? I wrote half was, of that. I don't normally write them. It was uh, It was pretty spectacular. Can you do it again? Oh, mate, I can have another crack. No <laughs> yeah, problem mate. at all. That's quite, you are a squash player. Sorry, are you still playing squash? Well, I was a squash player, yeah. Are you still playing um, squash? No, no. No, my, um, so, no, not at all. Not even casually. No, I um, I haven't stepped on a squash court in, well, about a year now. I, 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 I um, had been coaching for a while. And, yeah. Uh, I was uh, my most most recent position in squash was a national squash coach, mm-hmm. heading up the high performance program uh, for Squash Australia, and resigned from that almost a year today. That's exciting. Go. So to, uh, to move on a, on a on a new pathway, yeah. And you didn't um, get back on a court. You don't have a hit at all. No. Well, about eighteen months ago, I had uh, major hip surgery. Uh-huh. Um, hips are a, a big issue for squash players, yeah. and um, the the beating that my body took over the years led me to having a, a pretty much a hip resurfacing, which is like the young man's version of the hip replacement. So, oh, fair enough. So, it's yeah, quite so. funny because people watch squash and they think, oh, it's just two blokes or two women or mixed or whatever, just in a big box hitting the ball against the wall. Well, it is. And, and oh, it's funny you say it because I, I would use it when I was coaching. I'd, I'd break it down like that. Like, like seriously, guys, you're, on, you're in a room, yeah. a black ball against a wall. <laughs> like let's not overcomplicate this too much. <laughs> it's difficult. It is. It's a challenging sport. It, it's um. It's a, a phenomenal sport that um, that you know is is seeing a bit of a, a decline at at this present moment. But um, but the enjoyment and the the 
the passion that people have that play the game is is second to none. So it's got to be one of the biggest recreational sports, though, doesn't it? There's there's a lot of, or I know there used to be like a lot of squash centers. And all, is that still around? Um, no. I mean, to to be to be blunt and honest, the, the squash centers have declined significantly over the last twenty years. Why is that? Property um, development. I think or? property development. Yeah, yeah. The inclusion of you know high rise buildings coming in. If you think about the footprint that a squash center has and generally um they're in really Good ideal locations, locations you know <laughs> yeah, of so course. you know and and you know you can rent out a squash court for 25 30 bucks an hour you know peak times yeah and a developer comes along and offers you a you know, couple of million bucks for your property you're, you're not going to say no it's a, it's a hard decision for for um the owners of the buildings to, to make and generally squash court um were leased out so yeah so the business operators really didn't have much say in what it was and most people that ran squash centers were passionate about squash yeah most people that owned the the buildings that squash centers were in weren't as passionate about squash they're they're investors (laughs) so so from that perspective it, it changed the dynamics so now i mean when i grew up um in melbourne you know you couldn't drive from one suburb to the next without seeing a squash center yeah 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 10 10k's max away from each other and um it was a massive recreation sport there were you know it was one of the most popular played sports in the country and i think um as as we evolved as sports and and people got innovative with different types of sports yeah extreme sports became really prevalent and really cool to young people um and then fast forward to these you know new box gyms that are building communities and cultures and, and things that people want to belong to. Yeah. And so the combination of all these new opportunities and options for, for young people or people in general to participate in um, just sort of diluted that. Um, and It's sad, isn't it? Yeah, it's un, it's, it's unfortunate because it's yeah. a great game. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's, I mean, technology, squash is moving with technology. You know, we've got um, these interactive walls now. You can play... Um, it's like a it's like a massive video game. You can, oh, really? You, the front wall is now um, you can have it as a a glass wall. Yeah. And it's got screen, so hit the ball. So you can get young kids on playing like Space Invaders with a squash ball. You can basically oh, wow. hit the ball. So um, they've just actually put one up at the National Training Center in Carrara, um, just next to Metricon Stadium. There. Oh yeah. Um, the first one in Australia to be built, and uh, I experienced that for the first time myself in twenty. 18 was it um youth olympic games we, yep. i took two athletes over um to the youth olympic games and the it was a um demonstration sport but um it was put up in a um in a venue where they had futsal and badminton okay and table tennis a lot of other sports yeah, and yeah they had school kids coming in every day and these school kids went absolutely bananas to get on this interactive wall because yeah. it, was, it was like a massive Video, video game, game. Yeah, yeah, and I've never in my life of, uh, of all the years I've been around squash have seen kids that excited to get on a squash court before. So upon my return to um, to the Gold Coast, um, sort of debriefing with the the kind of the um, the team and about the experience of the Youth Olympic Games and what it means for squash, I was like that 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 interactive wall is you a game changer. Yeah, like sure. squash centers need to. Um, get a, get a way to get that in, into their clubs because that will that will draw kids in, bring them back by the masses. Um, so 
Yeah, and that's just my theory on it and yeah, whether yeah. that uh, eventuates. But it's, it's an expensive um, product at the moment. So, you know, hopefully that can sort of equate, you know, be yeah, yeah, brought down. So that, which, well, um, it's technology that will always happen. Exactly. Well, so. today we're not going to talk about squash. Most people cool. when they come here and we talk about you and talk about squash, it'll come into it, be part of it. But this podcast is all about you, right? So I want to hear from the very start. Right. Okay. How far back can you go? What's your, what's your first ever memory? You know, I was listening to a couple of your uh, podcasts before oh, coming into this, so I, I was like this, and I'm going. <laughs> you knew it was coming. So, so I was in my kitchen yesterday, and I was listening to um, the last episode with, um, like, forgive me for not remembering the guy's name, the the rocker from Geelong. Oh yeah. Um, it was hilarious, actually. I really enjoyed uh, listening to him It was a good laugh, mate. It was like we were best mates for I know. It was, years. It was like I was sitting in the pub listening to these two guys sitting across from yeah, me. It was hilarious. Yeah, it was so much fun to do. Yeah. So, yeah, no, it was good. Um, and I was thinking to myself, what is my first memory going back? And I started to sort of think of things. And I guess my earliest memories are of listening to Kiss. Yeah. Uh, Scratching my um, yeah, oh, being obsessed with Kiss. <laughs> <laughs> which 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 member? Ace Freely. I was Ace, Gene I was Ace Freely. Ace. Yeah, I could see you with the star on your. Oh, was that? that no, was, the, uh, nah. no, that was a star child. That was Paul Stanley, the that singer. Was Paul yeah. Stanley, that's right. Um, but I think my earliest memory was probably of trying to um, take my parents' LPs and put them on the record player and play them and. Not and scratchable. now, and well, <laughs> that was that was inevitable. Apparently, I, I basically ruined their record collection. That <laughs> which we were that probably could have been my retirement. Yeah, it could have been my retirement <laughs> fund. Like I might not have to work anymore if uh, if I didn't ruin all that. Yeah, but um, but I think my earliest memories were yeah, like playing with record players and um, just running and and playing sports, just and also being obsessed with AFL a little bit. Who's your team? Magpies. We're going to cut this podcast now. It's all over. No, I wouldn't do that to you. I'm a Swannies fan, mate. A Swannies? But you've got teeth. How can you be a Magpies fan? Well, I'm just up, up, upping the average. Oh, a bit. okay. Yeah, okay. yeah my wife right. and I, and now my uh, two-year-old daughter who, uh, who can child, sing. Can sing child the, abuse. It's, well, that's what my parents tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I've brainwashed her. But it was a purposefully uh, planned brainwashing for, for Scarlett so that um, so it would last long through her life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, no, I, I did the same. We were living in London when my eldest got born, and uh, I was a Chelsea, I'm a Chelsea fan. And the first song she learned to um, sing was "Super Frank Lampard." <laughs> that was great. Yeah. She still knows it. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, Scarlett can pretty much uh, <laughs> reel off the whole uh, Collingwood theme song at this point in time. You wouldn't hear it much these yeah. days, though. That's yeah. the only problem. Well, she does in my house. Oh, okay, fair enough. Daily, yeah. every morning, we <laughs> to well, her to her every night from the moment she was born to uh, still, still to this day. So oh, I love it. So I've recently just done an audition to go on Millionaire Hot Seat, right? Really? Yeah, I did last about two days ago. Yeah, because it's all being filmed up it's here now, right? Ago. Okay, yeah. so and I applied and there was 5,000 applicants and I got picked to come and audition. And one of the things they said to me was, what's your best Brett McCallum story? And I thought, fuck, that'd be really cool to do in a podcast. So I thought, let's go for like in about a minute or however long you want to take, what's your best Paul story? Oh, that's no, a, I've never done a, this before. They don't normally ask questions, but just, let's throw it out there. My best What's story. What's your favourite story about you? Or Ooh. something you've done or experienced? My favourite story. I've stumped you now. Man, you really have. Like, <laughs> you listen to the so it's only because you listened to the other podcast and you thought you knew what was coming. I thought I was, so I was, I was throw all a little sideball yeah. in there, eh? You've, you've thrown the curveball. <laughs> um, 
I think um, one of my favorite stories is um, I also um, became a musician. I, I, when I was traveling on tour, I, I um, actually I, I suffered a back injury when I was about 22, 23 years mm. of age, and it put me on the sidelines for about eight months off the court. And I was living in Amsterdam at the time, and I moved back to Melbourne to to do all my rehab and um, with the Victorian Institute of Sport. And through that first three month period, I couldn't um, I, I couldn't do much training. So I was I was going out with some mates and doing things I normally didn't get to do as a yeah. as a full time athlete who was sort of you know had big aspirations and um. Well, not in that short amount of time or yeah, yeah, consistently that. like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but I, I got into music and, and I'll probably get back to that story a bit later of how and why. And But I ended up traveling with my guitar and started writing songs. And, and when I moved to Toronto, um, I had a band and all this sort of stuff. But during that period, during my squash um, travels and, and meeting some amazing people, I ended up, found myself in, in LA recording and um, making a music video. Oh, wow. And, um, and I, I sort of went back and forth for about a year to LA to do stuff and, and rehearse with a band and, and all this sort of stuff. And there was one day I was actually on my way to fly back to Melbourne from Toronto. So I stopped in LA for three or four days. Um, and the, one of the producers I worked with, he said, oh, look, come by the studio. I actually met him for lunch and he said, I've got a song I want you to write some lyrics to and a melody. I'm like, awesome. Um, but at the same time, he was recording with Slash from Guns oh, N' really? Roses. Um, and he was recording um, his solo album that he did where he had all the guests on with Fergie. And, yeah, yeah. And yep. um, like, uh, some other amazing artists that I can't think of right now. But so anyway, I'm like, so what's it like so, you know, hang, hanging with Slash? And he's like, oh, he's a super cool dude, really down to earth. And, and it worked out. Both their kids went to school together. So um so anyway, um, he said, look, come back to the studio. I'll get you the track. And, um, you know, and, and my flight was that night. Yeah. So I went back to the studio and, uh, and uh, we're sitting in there. And he played me the track. And I was like, yeah, it was super cool. And we're chatting away. And he goes into the, one of the um, recording booths and he comes out with a Les Paul guitar. He comes out with Slash's guitar. Oh, And he wow. goes, here, why don't you play that? So of course, play Slash's guitar. So here I am sitting randomly playing Slash's Les Paul signature <laughs> Les Paul. So I played Sweet Child of Mine, of course, as you do on it. Oh, yeah, but just played itself. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. So, and and you know, I, I grew up listening to Guns N' Roses. I love, I loved Guns N' Roses a lot. Yeah. And um, so I was like, it's one of those moments in time where you're just like, wow, is this really happening? And then he's. Chris said something along the lines of, he said, he said, look, he says, why don't you come and meet him tonight? He goes, he's coming in tonight to record. He goes, what time's your flight? I'm like, it's 11.30 at night, whatever. And I was actually meeting up with my brother because we are flying back for my dad's uh, surprise 60th birthday yeah. party. And so I'm like, yeah, I can stop here on the way to the airport. He goes, yeah, come in. He said, no one will be in the house. Just come through the house, knock on the door. You know, we'll probably be recording or whatever when you get here, da, da, da. And you can... You can quickly meet Slash. So like, <laughs> You're not no going to give that up. Yeah, so, gotta do that. so anyway, we get, um, so I'm like all over it. <laughs> so <laughs> I pull up in the driveway. It's like the lights are off and um, I go through the house, get through the kitchen and where the studio door is. 
and I can just hear he's they're just they're recording and and Slash is just wailing on the guitar. So I stood there for probably just five minutes. <laughs> Listen, I probably had tears in my eyes <laughs> at that point, and I was like, I'm probably shaking as well. So you know, they stopped recording. So then I knocked on the door, come in, and there he is sitting there, yeah, you know, sort of white beater singlet on, yeah. baseball cap on backwards. Um, and it's almost like the first time you've ever seen Slash's face, right? Because <laughs> you've oh, normally sure. got yeah, yeah. hair covered. And um, yeah, who are you? <laughs> yeah, so Chris is like, um, hey Slash, this is Paul. You don't know Paul. Paul, this is Slash. You know Slash. <laughs> um, and he was he was just so like humble and down to earth. Hey man, how's it going? Nice to meet you. And it was just like. Like a genuine dude. And I, I don't remember if I spoke or what. what. <laughs> yeah, it might have been uh, just. <laughs> Bit of gibberish. But anyway, I probably hung out there for about, only about five to ten minutes. Mm. Just some chit-chat and whatnot. They played me a bit of what they were recording and and I kind of uh, left to, and jumped back in the rental car. And this is the, the thing that uh, oh, uh, still gives me goosebumps to today is I jumped in the car, started the ignition and the radio kicked in. And what's on the radio? Knocking on Heaven's Door, Guns no. N' Roses version. And I just, like, I got goosebumps oh, now. Oh, like, wow. And I'm just like, so I drove to the airport, dropped the rental car off. Tears rolling down the cheeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. wow. Just shaking, can't walk. Um, Did you get any photos and stuff while you were in there? No. Got, uh, well, this is this is quite a while ago where, <laughs> you know, we had, like, those little crappy Nokia phones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can, you didn't have no You couldn't take pictures on, on those things those days because <laughs> wow. this must have been, it just feels like yesterday, but uh, this is going back, yeah, 20, year, 20 plus years ago. That's amazing. And um, so, so I meet up with my brother in the airport and I've just got this massive cheesy grin on my face and he goes, what are you so fucking happy about? <laughs> I'm like, I just met Slash. He goes, Shut up. <laughs> Seriously, I just met Slash. So I told him the story and he was yeah, blown away. And he's so. there going, why didn't you invite me? Why <laughs> wasn't I standing next to you? Yeah. Well, he was flying from uh, New York. So he we met up met in, at, at the airport. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that's a Love crazy it. cool Love the story. story yeah. that, that's wicked. Okay, yeah. let's get back to the start. Where were you born? Melbourne. Where in Melbourne? Uh, Mooney Ponds. Mooney Ponds. Mooney Ponds, uh, yeah. So Mooney Ponds. Essendon Hospital, I believe. Really? And then what yeah. did you, uh, where did you go to school? I went to uh, school, well, high school was Kielba Secondary College. What about in, primary uh, school? Primary St. Albans, St. Albans Primary School. <laughs> it's I think it was. I'm here now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then what went to high school? Uh, Kielba Secondary College. And were you, uh, what were you, good, bad, ugly? Were you a, a, a student? Were you I was, just a sports uh, dude? I was... Uh, quiet like I was um I was very sporty as a kid like I played sports and the sports naturally came to me I was just I picked up sports very quickly yeah um and footy footy oh yeah any sport really and mm -hmm. just sort of I was, I've always been very good at just sort of visually watching yeah and, and, and perceiving that into my own body almost and, and okay. those movements are, are very I was able to really just replicate what I see yeah and, and I, and I and still that's do that learn, today. Yeah. And that's, yeah, the, that's why yeah, as a musician, I'm self-taught. Like I, don't, yeah. I can't read music or anything like that. So, um, so yeah, so at school, it was all about sports for me. But I went to a school that in, in my area, I was um, ironically enough um, one of the outcasts because I was an Australian kid. 
Oh, okay. So I went to school with a lot of Italians, yeah. Yugoslavians, Croatians, um, Greeks, Macedonians, mm-hmm. and things like that. So it was all about that, that sort of uh, soccer would have been big back then. Soccer would have yeah. was huge in our school. Like yeah. everyone played soccer. So, um, but you know, as a kid, even though I played a lot of sports, I was a bit chubby. So, so I found myself at high school getting a bit, uh, a bit bullied, 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 and uh, and put out to the side. But around about the age of thirteen, I I, I started to play squash. Okay. And how? What, what was that? What did mum and dad do? Um, mum and dad just uh, worked. Sort of uh, the usual sort of jobs. My mm. dad worked uh, for Country Road as like a trims manager. Yep. And mum worked at Target for a while, and then for quite a long time she worked at the Melbourne Zoo in the uh, sort of um, the finance department. Yep. And so were they athletic? So, um, they were. My dad mostly. My dad played a lot of squash. Okay. So that's um, how you got into it. Yeah. So I grew up around squash courts. Mm-hmm. Um, but footy was my sport yeah. from the ages of four till 12, <laughs> 13. Um, so I was always around squash courts. And I, when I was about nine, eight or nine, on a Friday night, I was at the squash courts. And I used to, my dad cut me off a, uh, a squash racket and I cut it in half, a wooden one, and put a grip around it. So I used to run around with that yeah. when I was little. And then I'd be at the squash courts. And back then in the uh, early 80s, when squash was massive, massive, it was. You couldn't get on a court. So as a kid, I'd run around and anytime someone would come off for a break, I'd run on and hit the ball around. Yeah. And remember, remembering just bouncing like so high. I couldn't even like reach it half the time. And, but then in between that, I'd go into the car park in Broad Meadows in the Northern Squash and hit the ball up against the car park wall, against the building. Yeah. Um, so. And that's just because it was fun. That's because I was just a kid just yeah. using my imagination and to brothers entertain and sisters. myself. One brother. One brother. Yeah, slightly a bit younger than me. And is he um, sporty as well? Yep. Yeah, my my brother is uh, he's he lives in Baltimore right now, mm-hmm. and he's a uh, uh, coach at the uh, Maryland Country Club. So he coaches squash. Um, okay. He also played on the tour uh, briefly. Yep. Um, and I've always, as I said to everybody, that my brother's probably the most talented person I've ever seen hit a squash ball. Oh wow. Um, so when you were kids and you had your sort of cut off racket and stuff, and did you just play together all the time? Is that the way it worked? Well, up until the moment where we'd have fights, yeah. yeah. And then you <laughs> hit each other with the rackets, and they'd, yeah, they'd turn into. Um, and we did. We we used to we used to love playing tennis in the backyard. We used to imagine that we were Stefan Edberg and Mats Verlander yeah. going out at Wimbledon. Um, so we we're always playing footy, cricket. We we're always doing sports in the in the backyard. And yeah. Then, uh, so yeah, so in so through high school, I think you know, reflecting on it now, I, I compartmentalized the, my life into sort of segments, which was school, which is yeah. all about survival, getting mode. through it, yeah. Um, and then going home, there would be my music, you know, listening to music, playing, learning to play the guitar, and then so immersing myself in that? that. Probably when I was like sixteen, okay, ish. Um, and is that because you were sort of a bit of an outcast, you were getting a bit bullied, so you sort of went and did stuff on your own, do you think? I think so, yeah. I've always considered myself a bit of a, a loner yeah. in, a, in a sense. Um, squash would be a really lonely sport though as well, wouldn't it? It, it is in a sense. It's an individual sport. Yeah, yeah. There's like not it's many you, team events. You. Yeah. Um, and, and you find that, you know, especially when you get on tour or even traveling as a junior, you know, you're always hanging out with the, kids you or people you've got to 
you know, beat. Yeah. Um, so, so they could be was, your mates in the morning and then you beat them up in the afternoon. Yeah, <clears throat> or vice versa. Yeah, of course. Um, and so it was a really interesting dynamic to to navigate through becoming friends with the people that you had to compete with constantly. Yeah, because we weren't – I mean, we traveled in groups. As, you know, there was Aussies and there was the Canadians and the Egyptians and the yeah. Pakistanis and the English. And, and they tended to sort of hang out together. Mm-hmm. Um. But at the same time, there was always that sort of little barrier there of going you know, on any given day of the random draw, I could be up against you today. And, um, and and naturally, everyone would sort of give each other that space and go. Yeah, cool. of course. But at times, you'd be sharing a hotel room with that same person. Oh, really? Yeah. So, It'd be um, fun to go back to if you lost. <laughs> <laughs> it did provide some uh, awkward moments. But I think everyone had that sort of respect and understanding of how uncomfortable that is, especially for the, the person on the on the losing end of the yeah, scale, of to go, we'll create that space and, and respect that boundary until that person sort of shows that they're coming out of it on yeah. the other side and they're back to being mates. So, so it's at interesting. Six, um, 16 years of age, you learn to play the guitar, you're playing squash. You've quit footy by now? Yeah, I quit footy when I started playing squash, I think. Why um, did you go from a team sport to an individual sport? That's a big change. Yeah, there was something about squash. I remember this, the moment that it happened. I was squash was actually on TV. It was a Sunday afternoon, and my brother, That's my a dad, long time and I, ago. Yeah, <laughs> um, used to it, always be on telly, didn't it? Squash? It did for a while yeah. there. And now, I mean, it's 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 heavily shown on uh, Fox Sports now. Yeah. Like all the major major events, and the the, the telecast now is phenomenal. The, the way with the glass courts and the uh, venues that we get that the, the guys are playing in today, especially, but um, but it was on TV, and I remember it finishing, and I just turned to my dad and said, "Can I get squash lessons?" And he says, "Yeah, we'll chat to Adrian down at the squash club and get you started." And and that was a moment, but I was just drawn to the creativity and the the nuances of the game. Like yeah. just it just it just grabbed me, like because as you said, you're a visual learner. Out. So by watching it and watching the pros do it. Yeah. You must be sitting there. Wow, that's not just hitting the ball against the wall. No, and and I and I I can't really. And it, I think it was you know Rod Martin was one of the players, and he was you know he became world champion, and he um he was a very creative player. Yeah. So I, and I think that resonated with me a lot, just in the shot making ability and the the talent and the the thinking and the the way you could just really just end a point by yeah. just outplaying somebody. It was. But it just drew me in. I was just like, and from that moment, I was just obsessed. So you know, I just thirteen years of age. Yeah. Wow. And then probably at the age of sixteen, seventeen, I was like, I think I want to have a crack at this. And I was not one of the top juniors in the country. I, did I think you I get to, tapped on the shoulder, or did you decide I'm actually going to have a crack? No, I just had a had a crack. Yeah. And I started getting the lessons, and then mm-hmm. played in the junior comps, and I just I just improved quickly. But I, you know, before that, I played some racquetball, so I had some basic skills in yeah. with the game and just being athletic and sporty as a kid growing up and playing all sorts of random things, you know, like backyard cricket, you know, you got to yeah. catch the ball off the roof with one hand yeah, for it to be out. And so you, and you're developing all these amazing skills by, and using your imagination. Mm-hmm. So, which is what's lost these days with video games. But absolutely. That's kid, my kid, whole philosophy. Kids don't, um, don't get that ability to one bounce, one, one, one hand going, one catch off, one bounce off the house or whatever. No. You don't see that shit. No, it's something I, I've spoken about quite a lot is that I believe that 
and not just in squash, but across all sports. Yeah. Um, that the skill level of young um, athlete, youth athletes coming through is not as um, high quality as what it was 20 years ago. Yeah, of course. And plus because because they are growing up with iPhones in their hands, mm-hmm. they're a lot more sedentary. They're s- sitting still a lot more. They're not outside. And not just that, but also society, the way we're, you know, like, you know, you used to be out riding your bikes until dark. Yep, exactly. You know, and Lights come on, shit, I've got to be home. And I remember probably being around that 13 age mark, riding off, how far can I ride away from home before I have to turn around? Yeah. <laughs> and like, and your parents have no idea where you are. They no, can't call not. you. They can't, they, yeah, yeah. And, and you're off like, you know, 10 Ks away. <laughs> and so I think about that now and I just don't. I wouldn't let my kid get 10 Ks away from my house. Yeah. <laughs> I'd track like, them on their phone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, the irony of that. So it's. So I think there's a lot. There's a lot of reasons why, but um, but I think a lot, a lot of. So it's, it's providing a challenge, and also I think it because of the way technology and social media um, distracts or fights for our attention, mm-hmm. the way it depletes our focusing chemicals, um, like the dopamine and uh, norepinephrine in the systems that are our focusing chemicals. Yeah, they get depleted through throughout the day a lot quicker because we've got all these things. That's why they're all tired and our all the tension, time. Our attention span is so much shorter and and, and, and not just kids. I mean, adults are, yeah, uh, worse. are suffering from this as well. So, and uh, so anyway. We're 16 years of age. We're now, we're now sort of kicking things forward. Like where, are we winning local comps by this age? Um, no, no, I was probably, I grew up, I, I actually played at the same club with a, uh, with the number one player in, in in our age groups in Australia, that's handy. Um, which at the time was frustrating, yeah, but course. but it, it was probably the best thing that could possibly have happened to me because I got to train with him every day, yeah, or most days, um, and used to get beaten up on, and I had that frustration, that drive to to get there and beat him, um, uh, which eventually happened when I was eighteen, and and I went on to to do that. And you went on, did he? Uh, he he did. Reasonable, I think maybe about top fifty in the world. Okay, um, but I can't remember, to be honest, exactly where. It doesn't where. matter. That's why. But it doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> no. Um, but so, um, but, so at eighteen years old, that's when you sort of now. Um, this is yeah. I can do this. Yeah, it was. I made the. Um, I think I was ranked about nine in the country as an, as an under nineteen junior, and going into my last year as a junior, um, the World Junior Championships were being held in Christchurch in New Zealand, and each year the Australia would send a team and they'd send the top four players in the country yep. to represent Australia at the World Championships. So, what are you top, number nine by now? I was about nine when at the start of that year. Yep. And um, going into it, the top three spots were pretty much secured. So, we were really fighting. Most of us were fighting for one spot. Yeah. So, I ended up, um, I, I worked really hard and I worked a, even harder on my mindset. And I, I made that team. And so who's teaching you that? In, because back in those days, mindset was big, but not like it is these days. No. So was it was it you that did that, was, or was it I got a scholarship coach? to the Australian Institute of Sport. Okay. And I was given access. Yeah, I was given access to Ian Liner, who was uh, Michael Liner's father. Okay. Um, and he, a phenomenal sports psychologist. So I had a couple of sessions with him, and he taught me about visualization. Yep. Um, in particular, which I went to town on basically and embedded that into my part of my daily routine. And, but the other guys 
were having none of it. They thought it was a bit of a crock of shit. Of course. So I recognized that that was my leg up. That was the advantage that I could expose. Yeah. Um, or that was different. That was something different I was doing that no one else was doing. Because we're all doing the same training. We're all getting as fit as each other and yeah, of course. whatnot. But, and that made all the difference. So once I made that team and experienced the world championships, it really gave me that bug to to set my sights. And at age of 18, I remember, and I've still got the piece of paper at home, um, I will be top five in the world. Yeah. Um, and I set that as a goal. And then about four, years four or five years after that. You yeah, did it. It happened. So did you make the top four that year? You made the team for Christchurch? Yeah, made the team. Went off, um, ended up in the individuals. So I made the top 16 at the World Championships, yeah. which was um, which was kind of my, my, my goal that I'd set out to, to achieve. And, um, and then as a team, we finished third behind Egypt and England, I think it was, yeah. That's awesome. I've yeah. been pretty, pretty happy with that. Oh, we were we were pretty stoked about it. I mean, yeah. the competition, you know, at that level is is pretty high. So, yeah. um, so yeah, so it was it was a great stepping stone for my confidence to experience that, and then also get that vision of what the best players around my age group look like, trained like, and what what their game felt like. How, at that how level. much better you have to get to actually then yeah. train with the elite. Yeah. yeah. So so then the following year I turned pro, which I think was ninety. What was that? Was that so? You went to the AIS. Yeah. And do you do school still while you're at the AIS, or well, is I'd it just finished, I'd finished high school. They didn't do uni or anything like that. Then? No. Okay. No, we were encouraged to do some courses and things like that. Yep. Um, but again, like you know, think of the athletes today with online learning and all the opportunities they have. Yeah, I mean, it was completely tough, different. Tough, world. tough. <laughs> uh, asked to someone who was so, so focused on a sport to yep. have a part-time study and. And commit the time and effort to that. So you so. moved to Canberra for that, or where did you do AIS? No, the AIS was in Brisbane mm-hmm. oh, uh, for squash. Yeah, yep. so so it was great. Um, Jeff Hunt was uh, one of the greatest players ever to play the game. Was the head coach at the time, and Heather Mackay, who's also arguably the greatest women's player of all know, time. Arguably, <laughs> yeah. she's got to be, doesn't she? Well, definitely. I mean, from her record. It's un, it's pretty hard, but you've uh, most recently Nicole David, who's only in the last few years retired from Malaysia. She won eight world championships as well. Okay. I think in, in the the difference of the errors, you know, technology, you've got, all that sort of stuff. Um, I mean, who knows, right? It's one of those conversations people love to have that yeah. I'm just like, it just doesn't matter though. It's like the Ali Tyson debate. Yeah, it's two different yeah. universes. Who knows. So you went to the AIS and what makes you sit there and go, actually, I'm going to go pro? Is there money in it? Yeah, I mean. Or was it a monetary decision? Was it a. Um, no, if it was a monetary I decision, I probably would have um, <laughs> kept playing tennis when I was, before I started playing squash. Um, no, money was never a driver and, and never has been. And it's still to this day, doesn't really um, motivate me. Okay. I mean, it helps me. Eat. Live the life that I want to live. Yeah, of course. So, um, so it was all about ranking and achievement at that point. And um, so, do you remember the day you sat there and went, "Actually, I'm going to go pro," or it was just um, the progression? It was. A, it was a progression. I think it was from the age of 16, 15, 16 that I started dreaming about becoming a pro. Mm-hmm. And visualization. Sort of, yeah. Well, well, well yeah. I mean. We're all always visualizing. Yeah, visualizing. of course. Yeah, hundred percent. I'm a big believer. It's um, 
you know, every time we, we speak or think, we're, we're, we've got some form of an image yeah, of floating around our head. So um, it's why it's the, the biggest, freest, most powerful resource that I think people aren't utilizing to oh, their ability. Especially during shit times like we're in now. It's yeah. like, like there, there's ways to deal with things. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was, a, it was a progression, I think. Um, and, yeah, uh, there's a handful of people around that w- would try to convince me that nah, this, that's not going to work out. There's no money in the sport. Yeah. You're really going to have a career as a top squash player. That sort of mindset, which I think only kind of fueled me a bit more. And were your parents encouraging about that? Yeah, my, my parents were phenomenal. They, yeah. I remember my, my parents were called into a meeting at school, in high school, when, uh, by the education coordinator. Because I, I was like, what, you know, what university are you going to apply for? I'm like, I'm not. <laughs> like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, um, I'm going to go for a scholarship at the AIS. <laughs> and the, so they were trying to talk me out of that and like, well, you should have this backup plan and da-da-da. And my parents were called in to a meeting saying, look, we're concerned about Paul and you know, his, his future. And they're like, well, if this is what he wants to do, then... We'll back him. We'll back it, and you know, we'll we'll see how it goes. And and you know, I'm so grateful and thankful that my parents um, had the courage to to let me go out and potentially fall flat on my face. Mm. Um, but you had a crack. That's all. And, but but then they've always been that way. That, you know, whatever you want to try and do, they've they were supported both my brother and I in in having a crack. Yeah. So so that was a, a really fortunate um environment for me to grow up in and and i'm oh, 100 so it makes you that. as a human a like who you are because yeah. we we learn and we get taught and all that sort of stuff when we don't even know we are and yeah. uh, we learn from mistakes we learn from our parents we learn from people around us and to have the ability to go to the ais as well to learn from the best players ever yeah um is, is a blessing because you, you then get to actually become a better human and a better squash player and everything else you need to do to become pro, which yeah. is what it's all about. Yeah. Um, and so that's always been my thing is like I just – if I wake up thinking about it, I just kind of have to – Have to do it. have to do it because it just it – just, it's inside me and that's kind of how I've led my life even up until now. It's like – Which is awesome. Gotta think Great about way to live. It. Yeah. It's uh, – it is. It's also a little scary at times, but, but that's part and parcel. <laughs> of of it. If you're um, not scared, it's not worth doing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So so you go pro and then how big's the pro tour for squash back in those days when you first went pro? Is it um, all around the world? Is it only in certain countries? Yeah, it was glo- global. I Can mean, you live played... here and do it or do you have to live overseas? No, we had to move um, to, to Europe in those days. Mm-hmm. So I moved to uh, Germany when I was 20, 21. I mean, we, I'd... First couple of years, I I would go off on tours, spend three months on tour playing tournaments, yeah, um, getting beat up on, uh, coming back in it, and again fortunate that we had some funding from the Institute of Sports to help us get over there and survive. And even though we, do when it you say we, time, there was a few of you, or yeah, there was I mean, with a bunch of us in the similar groups that okay, through with scholarships, all Aussies, yeah, yep. um, you know, there's times we slept on on the floors in the squash centers and and different things like that, you know, where just to save money, sleep in hotel rooms of the players that actually qualified for events. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you sort of had to bum it a little bit, but again, that's building your character, building that grit, oh, building that resilience. And um, 
and 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 that and that was also a real testing point because as we went through that those experiences slowly players would just drop off okay i'm going to go back i'm going to do uni i'm going to get a yeah, job yeah. and things like that so it's a good it's tough but it was a good filtering mechanism to go okay well who really wants this yeah who are these thing you know <laughs> um it, yeah who's going to stick with this and so and and, and many of those guys that dropped off from the squash tour went on to do phenomenal things in other areas of life that they found another passion in which yeah. they were able to sort of, you know, there's a lot of traveling around the world by yourself at the age of 18, 19, 20 with no money and things like that <laughs> is, you know, it's a, it's a tough predicament to find yourself in. But driven by that goal and that vision and that passion, you sort of find a way. Yeah, and sure. So I think the the years... Around the 94, 96, 98 mark, the tour was probably worth about 1.5 million total prize money of all the tournaments globally. Oh, wow. Um, which is not even no, not Roger even. Federer's prize money for winning the Australian Open. Oh, exactly. Or, yeah, yeah. or Djokovic is there. So, um, but now that the events are getting uh, bigger now. Yeah. So the prize money is improving for the players. Um, but back then, like you say that, um, why – if there was no money in the actual tour itself, um, you're doing it for rankings. Is that is that what what the aim is in in the way that works? Yeah, you're doing it for your to build your ranking, but yeah, would that I mean, then build sponsorship and stuff like that as well. Some sponsors really? were coming. Yeah, sponsors were coming to it. Also, um, league teams. So there were big leagues in Europe. Okay, they pay you to play uh, on their league teams. So yep. there were lots of different avenues or uh, opportunities to make income. Mm-hmm. Um, so you just but. You, the best players obviously would get those opportunities yeah, first. Yeah, of course. Um, so it's just about navigating local events, different tournaments, exhibitions, clinics, league matches, professional tournaments. And how um, often are you coming back to Australia during these times? Um, probably two or three times. A year. So we probably go away for three or four months, come back, yeah, train up again, go off again. So the tour lasts for around that four-month period? Yeah, me? depends on where it was. Sometimes yeah. you would go over to Malaysia for three weeks and play three events. Oh, okay. Come back. So it, it varied quite a bit. And then uh, at the age of 21, I moved to Germany. So I got into a Bundesliga team there and I coached at the club. So I just spent the better part of a year just training my ass off, living in the squash center, yeah. um, coaching and playing leagues and then going off every other weekend playing pro tournaments or local events. And there was a lot okay. of good players in that. So that's like having a golf pro at a golf club. Yeah. Yeah. Same yeah. sort of concept. Yeah. So so that allowed me to survive and then keep training and building my ranking up and things. But And then uh, just tail end of that year, I moved to Amsterdam where there was a, a big hub of great players, mm-hmm. like some players in the top 20 in the world, things and got into a league team So at there. this age and this time, where are you in the world rankings? Um, probably about 80 in the 80? world. Okay. So top 100. Yep. Um, and then – yeah, I moved to Amsterdam and lived there for a couple of years. And uh, between that, and that was sort of a catapult for me to get being amongst that environment, some top 10 players and top yeah. 20 players. Um, it allowed me to you know, constantly put Betty. myself in uncomfortable situations and yeah. get beaten up on and get beat, learn, 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 and, um, and chase. But again, the main driver for me, I think, was around representing Australia, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, I, I, my goal was to rate, make top five in the world, but my goal was also to be a part of a world championship winning Australian team and to, once we got news 
um, that squash was going to be included into the Commonwealth Games in 98 for the first time in Kuala Lumpur, that was the next those things. You know, yeah. So people ask me what the things I'm most proud of in my squash career, it's always been winning back-to-back world championship for Australia. Um, that was a team and event? Then, and then playing in the Commonwealth Games and winning a medal. Talk me through the world champs. So um, their team events, are they? Yeah, so similar to that world junior situation, they, yep. they pick the top four men's players mm-hmm. and women, but uh, they'd have it biannually. Yeah. So, so uh, yeah, the first time I was fortunate I made the team three times. Was it was it different uh, when you made the junior team? When you make the senior team, are you there going, actually, look, I'm representing my country now? Or did you feel that at the same when you were a kid? No. Um, it, I think that the, the difference in the feeling didn't come from it was like I'm representing my country, like wearing that coat of arms on you. Oh, mate, as I said at the start, it's, it's, the, it's, it's still today gives me yeah, goosebumps. Yeah, it gives me goosebumps and, and, and I'll and sit um, next year. <laughs> and it, so going off, whether you're a junior or, or not, I think back then like just to, to get that tracksuit was like one of the most unbelievable feelings that yeah. you could have. Um, so the pride and the honor around doing that I don't think shifted. I think what changed was that when you made the junior team, you did it with all your mates, okay. the, the kids you grew up with. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then when I made the first Australian team, I was in the Australian team with some of my junior idols, whether <laughs> like you know Rodney Isles and uh, you know, Rod you Martin was the coach at that point. Wow. Um, Dan Jensen, who was a few years older than me, but was someone I was inspired by, um, and Anthony Hill, who was top six in the world. Um, so how do you not fanboy on those guys? <laughs> and what I mean by that, like you meet these guys for the first time. And it's an interesting you've got to be a little thing. Bit excited. I, I was actually thinking the other day, what happens in someone's brain when they, because you know I had to come up and compete against those guys, and I ended up, you know, beating Anthony and um, Rod Isles at some point in my journey. Yeah. Um, albeit they're sort of you know at the tail end of their careers, but what happens in someone's head to to go from ha- Idolizing someone to to, going, against them. to to knowing how to beat them or compete with them is it's a significant shift, and I, and I'll always bring that back to that sort of visualization aspect that yeah. I, that I trained so hard with. Um, but but so I guess the making a junior team is significant, but then making a senior team is like that's Pinnacle. now you're the best in the world. You know, yeah. there's a there's a different shift, there's a different level, and it's um. And because you're doing it with guys that you idolize, it brings a um, it brings a different perspective and energy to it. And it's, sure. it's like I'm kind of one. Am I one of them now? And yeah. So it brings another level of confidence and belief. I think that home, you get honed in on and, and it allows you to catapult from as well. What was better, winning the first one or the back to back? I think the first one because we did it in Melbourne. Okay. So, so it was 2000 and uh, was it 99? 2000? Yeah. 2001. Um, so we. So you would have had like family, friends, everyone there watching. Yeah, my my, my parents were there. Yeah, and, that's know, pretty my, special. My coach, the coach I grew up with, Roger, and there was a lot of, you know, amazing people pretty there. Special that, doing it in your hometown. Um, so to win a world championship is one thing to do it on your home soil oh, and your hometown. Yeah. At the center you trained at for most for a big part <laughs> of your life, is. That's pretty cool. It's pretty pretty awesome. So, 
So we won that one and um, it was, yeah, it was amazing. And then. What do you get for that? A gold two. medal or? Yeah, it's just a prestige. Yeah. But you actually I, get I like a yet. physical medal? Yeah. 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 Awesome. Got a medal and um, some nice photos. And, uh, and just that. And the memories, you know. I love it. I think we got some uh, um, some funding yeah. as well for, for uh, but it's results like that that actually help programs oh, like the AIS go 100%. through and things. So, yeah, yeah. so you think of it in terms of like how did those results help the you future generations like as well. thousands of kids. You know, so yeah. it's uh, – so when you think of it, that aspect, it's pretty powerful and pretty, mm. pretty Especially awesome. that you're part of it, mate. Yeah. And then, uh, so then two years later, when we go back to defend, we had a slightly different team. Um, there was a couple of different players in there. So were you sort of more up the ranks now by that stage, two years on? Yeah. I was, I was probably Instead in of coming top. in at the fourth, you were sort of in yeah, the I think top I was, couple? Yeah, I think I was, I might have been two, two. David Palmer, I think, was one on that team. I might have been two or three. I can't remember now. Yeah. It's, but, um, but you're like a, a senior member. But of yeah, team, but we yeah. also had like um, we had a lot of players in the top ten, yeah. top sixteen in the world at that stage. So it was pretty competitive. So, so that's like we played you in Austria in the yeah. top ten in the world by that stage. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So and what number did you get to? Three or four? Four, four. Because yeah, I was yeah. reading some podcast said number three in the world. I said, no, it's mine. Says number four. Really? Well, <laughs> there you go. Take it. Well, uh, yeah, we can take it. But <laughs> top no, four, four in the world. That's got to be pretty special. Especially when you always want to be in the top five in the world, like, and you make that. Yeah, in hindsight, I kind of think it was that my uh, limiting factor was that my limiting belief kicking in around that you just had to get that the top I was like five. top five, and once I got there, um, did I? I didn't really, I didn't really vision beyond that too much. Yeah, and I think that was one of my downfalls is that I, I didn't really, um, have a plan for what happened once I got there. Okay. Which is something I talk to athletes about now, and even people I work with in what I do. Yeah. Um, is that okay? It's cool to get like that one ex- that that one little pinpoint, like that top five in the world. But what does that mean, and what can be done from that point? And how can I better myself again? And what happens from there? Yeah. So, um, but look, in achieving that goal in it itself is insanely. Like I'm, I'm obviously so proud super proud of proud yeah. of it. Um. And and it's yeah, it's something that it's hard to put into words, but it's also the thing that I draw from it the most is like I think back of all the crazy shit I did to get there. <laughs> like in the and not just the crazy stuff in the training and the, the traveling and the um that sort of resilience, but you know, even the the the, the I guess the darker stuff, like the, the attitude that I had at times around being so friggin' tunnel visioned and yeah, you know, sort of re- relentless in being, no, you kind of like it's it's I've got to you know, be so selfish in a way. And, and are you single through this whole time, or have you got uh, girlfriends, or how's that all work? Bit of bit of both. Bit of both. Yeah. And so. do you think that that relentless relentlessness and that tunnel vision affected relationships? Uh. I think so, yeah. I, well, I mean, or had to. lots, lots of travel involved, yeah, yeah, things of like course. that, and you know, there was times I did travel with, um, with with some with my partners, and it just always brought a different dynamic. But it was it was just a challenging, challenging uh, environment, especially when it's not like you know you're not earning that sort of income where it's really easy to travel with an entourage. Yeah, yeah, of course. 
you know, so and you're 22, 21 years of age, and so it was a, a difficult thing to do, which probably added stress that didn't need to be there. Yep. Um, but so I mean, again, I did the things that sort of made me happy and, and, and the things that felt right at the time, and well, we all despite my better judgment, <laughs> <laughs> we all fuck things but, up. Yeah, but um, so yeah, but so um, when did you meet your missus then? Um, my wife, we met in Toronto about 11 years ago. Yeah. Do you remember the day? I do. Yeah. How'd you meet her? We met, we initially met, um, I was, at this stage I was heavily into the music and playing a lot of gigs in, around Toronto. And So you've gone from a pro squash player into a full musician by this stage? Well, I combined the two. So when, once I sort of retired or stopped playing single squash, I moved into playing hardball doubles, which is played in North America and as a a tour for that. Okay. Um, and I got to num- world number one in that. Um, What's it called? Hardball double. Yeah. So it's a, it's a bigger squash court. Yeah. And it's a it's a hardball. So not as hard as a golf ball, but not as not you know, as soft you know, as a if you get ball. hit with that thing, you know about it. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's painful. Um, but there was a tour that was played around North America. So I coached at a uh, Toronto Racquet Club mm-hmm. and played for their uh, doubles team. And I played on this uh, doubles tour. Yeah. And so I'd play play music through the week, play my gigs. And sometimes I book gigs at tournaments. And this is in a band or as your individual solo, yeah. solo. Sometimes in a band. Yeah. Um. But I was I was I was just so um, passionate about writing music and and doing that stuff. So building that part of me or my career up. So I did squash on the side that yep. made me money. So that so I could, could spend more time and play guitar. playing gigs and stuff. So quite often I'd be off to Friday early up six a.m. Friday morning to go and catch a flight to go and play a doubles tournament in New York or something. Yeah, that after start starting that afternoon, but I'd just finished playing a gig at two a.m. the night before. Really? So I'd go out and get on a plane and <laughs> do this and um, yeah, and it, it was it was. I loved all of it. Like playing the music was phenomenal. Like, and I still I miss it to today. But, um, but the way the squash. Am I good? Were you a good musician? Uh, no, no, no. Just enjoyed it. But I loved doing it, and I, I think I just had a knack of writing some decent songs. And yeah, um, I think considering I wasn't taught, I didn't have any lessons or anything like that. I think I made the most of what it was. I mean, I got to. I opened for Mark Seymour from Hunters and Collectors wow. in Toronto a couple cool. of nights. Yeah. Um, I played some cool gigs. You know, yeah. And uh, recorded a few albums and, and things like that. So it was it was a good part of my life that I would, I'd do again over it's and over. You've got to have that other outlet as well, don't you, from what you're doing on a daily basis. Yeah. Like it, it didn't really occur to me, especially when I was playing on the singles tour, how important it was for me to have music mm-hmm. and do that as well. Because it just changed my my focus point and gave yeah, me another outlet, gave me another um, thing to really immerse my focus into, yeah. like give me more flow, as I know today. Um, but there were some coaches that I was working with at the time that weren't so <laughs> crash hot on me spending time doing this stuff because they thought it would take away from my thing. But what I believed today, and you think it helped you as opposed to hindered you? 
I think it, it would it definitely helped me out. Mm. Um, in particular, towards the latter part, because I was I struggled with a lot of injuries, things like that. Um, so it did give me a thing to focus my attention on that I was excited about, rather than sort of sitting there going, "Well, I can't play or train yeah. at the moment. I've got to just sit on my ass and do nothing," which probably would have led to me going out drinking and partying, <laughs> something yeah, like fair that. Call, fair call. Um, so you got to world number one in the the doubles. Mm-hmm. Yep. In in hardball squash, never seen it, never heard it, but it sounds interesting. <laughs> it's, it's a great game, actually. It is a lot of fun. But and I think, who was your partner in that? Um, I had a couple of guys. Jamie Bentley was the the first guy that I partnered with. He was like the the godfather of doubles in, oh, really? uh, in squash. Yeah. Um, and he was he was awesome. I learned learned a ton from him playing, and uh, and then I partnered up with another Aussie guy, Ben Gould, and. That was after my first full season. Then we we became world number one team. Yeah, we knocked off the the combination of Mudge and Weight, who were, had been world number one for about ten or eleven years or something wow. ridiculous at that yeah. point. So I think we were the first we were the first combination to knock them off to knock them off and to stay with them for a bit. And then uh, yeah, then I partnered up with an English guy towards the end of my. Career, but yeah, you know, going through the doubles, uh, I it was it was a means to an end for me, unfortunately, which also led to me kind of being frustrated by it a lot. Yeah, like cool. it was it was kind of the only thing I could do in Canada to make money due to my work permit. Yeah, situation, so I couldn't really evolve into too many other things because of the restrictions I had around, around that the and, permit. Um, and um, and, and I met my now wife. Yeah, there. So how did you we meet did her? ask that. We did ask that, and we didn't get there. But no, that's right. Um, how did we meet her? So playing gigs in Toronto, I met her playing a gig, and um, I, I, I had a, a partner at the time, and she had a partner. So it was like one of those brief meetings. Hey, this is such and such. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then it was until a few months later that. We sort of bumped into each other again. Then about eight months after that, we'd we're both now single, and I was supposed to I played a gig at this awesome venue in Toronto called the Elma Combo, and um, I'd asked um, this guy to play play on the show with us, and he said yeah, and then he backed out the last minute and got his buddy to play, which was cool. And then Kyla was a friend of Jeremy, so I remember there was a sound check. And I was getting my CDs, putting them out for sale, whatnot. And a drummer came up to me and he said, uh, "Paul, there's uh, someone's out front asking for you." I'm like, "Oh, who is it?" And he goes, "I don't know, but she's hot." <laughs> and I'm like, "Did you know who it was?" Okay. Right? No, no. Oh, really? No, I hadn't seen Kyler in months, and we'd yeah, barely yeah. even spoken a word. Anyway, um, so I said, "All right, I'll, I'll come in and say." He goes, "No, no, you got you got to come now." <laughs> Like she's super hot. I'm like, okay. Drop everything. So just go. I go at the front and there's Kyle. She goes, hey, hey, Paul, I don't know if you remember me, but I'm like, oh, I remember you. <laughs> she goes, yeah, I'm just coming by and see Jeremy and friends with Jeremy. I do a, uh, They did this little uh, radio show together. And uh, I said, oh, cool. He's inside. Come on in. And we chatted and she stayed um, for the show. But she left before my set. So but she came up to me and asked me if I'd play in a um, – a songwriter's circle that she was hosting once a month as well. And um, so I agreed to that. And anyway, we sort of ended up chatting and I went to see some of her 
other gigs that she was doing. So she's a singer? Yeah, phenomenal singer. Yeah. Yeah. yeah she actually just finished up doing uh, the Bodyguard musical in uh, the Spotlight Theatre here. Oh, wow. Gold Coast. Yeah. 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 Um, but phenomenal singer. And, and, uh, yeah, we just sort of connected and then our first date was a four-day camping trip with me and 11 of her friends that I didn't know <laughs> that I caught a bus to. to Good first date. To go and chase, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> and then been together ever since. We moved back to Australia five, six years ago now. How long have you been married? We've been, that's a new, I can look at, look at that look in your face. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I'm going to cause some trouble here. I am. Uh, we've been married for, it'll be coming up seven years. Seven years. That's awesome. And did you get down years. on one knee? Uh, I proposed to her at a gig in her hometown in Nova Scotia. Okay. I had a, um, so we, we, we did this cover gig and it was at her um, sister and brother-in-law's bar in Truro, Nova Scotia. And. We're just doing cover gig, you know, cover songs and Together. stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. And um <clears throat> had my my parents were visiting over at the time, so they were there. Um, her parents were there. Um up and her brother and sister were there. Did you ask uh, her parents? Brother in law. I, I did ask her dad, yeah. yeah. Um funny story, we're at their cottage and it was I'm like I tried to get him alone, like <laughs> this two days we were there and couldn't do it. And eventually the the night before we left, he he went out to take the dogs out to to go to the bathroom before uh, going to bed. So I followed him out, and he's got this this hill up there, walking up this hill in the backyard. And so I, I said, oh, "Look, you know, the gig on Thursday night. I plan on asking Kyla to marry me. You know, and I would love your approval." And he was like, "Oh, uh, so." And we're both at this point, we're staring at these two dogs taking a shit. <laughs> and he sort of looks. He goes, "Oh shit. Well, uh, oh well." I guess welcome to the family. Oh, awesome. <laughs> uh, so that was that was pretty that was cool. <laughs> so anyway, at the at the gig, so at the end of the first set we played um we were playing Edge of Seventeen by Fleetwood Mac. Mm-hmm. From that start, you know, I play the guitar of and Kyla starts singing, you know, just like the white window. And as so I and Kyla loves the bagpipes. Coming from Nova Scotia, that Scottish heritage yeah. a little bit, the, the bagpipes are a big influence in that part of the world but I can't stand them like I'm she was like <laughs> we talked about getting married I'm she was, I'd love to have bagpipes at my wedding I'm like not happening do not need cats squealing <laughs> at my wedding <laughs> so I compromised and um I um so during on that trip um out to Nova Scotia I found a bagpiper well actually called about 11 bagpipers the fact and, that there's 11 bagpipers is well they're all booked out this oh, wow. is the crazy thing on a Thursday night <laughs> and they charge a fortune. I'm like, I've got to learn this crazy instrument. They're making a killing. You came in and played for three minutes and it was like 250 bucks. Wow. Um, albeit he had to drive about an hour to get there, but um, it was well worth it. So you've organized so, the bagpiper. You so I've song? got um, mid-song, bagpiper, and my brother-in-law Derek helped me uh, orchestrate this. So he yeah. let the bagpiper in through the kitchen in the back of his bar. And all of a sudden we start singing these bagpipers burst through the back of the kitchen. <laughs> going bananas. And I'm still playing and Kyle's looking at me going, singing going, looking over, what the fuck's going on? And I'm looking at her going, what the fuck's going on? She keeps singing. And then the bagpiper walks to the front of the stage and he's walking between all the tables. 
And eventually he stops in front of the stage. And, and by this stage, we'd stop playing because everyone started clapping to the bagpiper. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, it's stuff the entertainment. Yeah, the exactly. Bagpiper. This is a real entertainment now. And um, he stopped and everyone sort of clapped and applauded. And he, and as part of the plan, he says, I have a delivery for Kyla. And Kyla's like, you know, shocked on her face. And it was a DVD that I'd created. Gave her the DVD and we put it in. And there was a TV screen near the stage. So Derek had put the DVD in. So we'd set all this up yeah, yeah, prior of to this. Yeah. And we load it up and then there's a, you know, it's, a, it's basically a slideshow with music on um, of pictures of us through our journey and, and, and things like that. And then one of our favorite quotes from a, a song by a band called Shovels and Rope is, um, I love you like gunpowder loves a good spark. Yeah. So it says that at the end and then I said, will you marry me? So at that point I got down on one knee and. Every man that's listening to this podcast absolutely fucking hates you, right? <laughs> you just put the bar so high. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think I did that's well. I think insane. I did well. Um, she said yes, obviously. She said yes, and, um, and and we often joke about you know. She says, "What would you have done if I said no in like in front of everybody like that?" I said, "Are you kidding me? There was no way no after that I was going home unengaged that night because there was probably a lineup of about seven other women just enthralled by oh, what course, I did. I course. was going home engaged no matter what, whether it was you or someone else. I don't know. <laughs> That's always been the running joke around it, but um, that was a special it. moment that you know our families were all there to see it. And um, you're doing well, mate. Well yeah, done. That, yeah. That's one of the best moments ever. Yeah, it's pretty pretty epic. So then you moved back to Australia and uh, you're obviously married and then now you've got a little kitty? Yes. We, she just had her second birthday uh, last Doesn't week. that change a lot? It's unbelievable. It's it's incredible. <laughs> like, you know, and, and this is the, the, the funny thing is, you know, people talk about how kids change their life and, and the, the moment. When you don't have one, they're going, oh, yeah, of course it does. Yeah, well, of course it does because now you don't sleep and now you don't do any, all these things that you used to do. Yeah, no more squash, no more music, no more. <laughs> but, it's just about the kid. But it internally changes you significantly, hundred quickly, and um, yeah, and she's been a huge blessing for us, and she's just a, an amazing little girl that you know lights us up, and, and it sort of helps me, like just seeing her curiosity and creativity and growth and the the joy that she has in these little things, it really helps you sort of look at that in a different way for yourself going, I'm big on childlike enthusiasm. Like yeah. I, I, it sort of comes back to like following your passion and your purpose a little bit like, you know, you're struggling to find it quite often. You can, if you dig back to your childhood, what are the things that kind of really lit you Got up you a excited, little bit? Yeah. You know? Or what was that feeling that you felt as a kid when you were so wrapped in something? Like where do you find that today? And usually the answer lies within those sort of realms a little bit but you can actually physically and see it happening with with her when she gets something or some you know she does something for the first time you can actually see the penny drop yeah and it's (laughs) you're actually you know as i say now like you're watching neuroplasticity take place in front of your eyes like that you can it's almost like you physically see the brain molding itself to 100 to something and it's and that's part of what i'm studying and researching and training people with now is so to, to have the knowledge around it and then also watch it unfold at this point in time. So what are you doing now? Powerful. Now, 12 months ago, 18 months ago, you quit squash for good. We're done. We've, we've quit the Australian coaching job and now yeah, you're so we uh, had, um, doing your own thing. What's your own thing? So my own thing, I, I'm, I'm uh, coaching people with mindset but with mm-hmm. a heavy focus on um, flow. So okay. getting into a flow state 
that sort of moment of rapt attention where, you know, I mean, the, the technical term for flow is that, you know, the optimal state of consciousness, the way we feel our best and perform our best. And, mm-hmm. um, is that through, where go with the flow comes from? Um, possibly. I think the, the word flow in itself is, is kind of, it, it, I mean, when, when, I mean, there were studies done by a guy named Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, a Hungarian philosopher or psychologist um, back in the um, 60s, 70s, somewhere around that era. Um, and he went on this global mission to find out what makes people happy or yeah. what, when do people, what do they feel when they're performing their best? What, what, what does peak performance look like for everybody? And he interviewed, you know, from Japanese samurais to, to you know, forklift drivers to, if all these different vocations of, and ask people that question, you know, what do you experience when you perform your best and you feel your best? And everyone just sort of came back with very um, similar answers mm-hmm. around just you sort of get wrapped, lost in the moment, time sort of speeds up or slows down. and um, But it, it, they all use the word flow, like yeah. things just sort of flowed. And it's like this conversation has just flowed. Yeah. And so we all experience this thing, but this is a it's a physiological and a neurobiological process that we're all hardwired to have, and we all have them in these moments that throughout the day there might be micro moments of flow where you might be like, "I've got to get an email out. I've got to do that email," and you you smash out that email, and then you're like, "Shit, what did I write?" You got to go back. So it's where you you know you lose sense of yourself. The inner critic goes offline. Um, you know, in this this special moment where your performance is enhanced, productivity is enhanced, creativity, decision making, all these things like we just become superhuman. And how are you teaching people words. this? Are you is it like it's training courses? Are you educating them, or are you just helping them identify it? Well, I think I think you got to help. Awareness is the biggest. Yeah, of course. On anything, I think you got to have awareness before you can have sort of competence in anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting that. You know, we, we associate flow or being in the zone to performers. Like generally people think of the zone being exclusively held for athletes yeah, um, or for musicians or artists and, you know, these things that are very um, creative and, and whatnot. But um, it's, it's a perfect moment. So there's a, there's a whole bunch of things that come into play here. Your brain waves are one of them. So when you're in flow, your brainwaves are sort of sitting at a, an alpha, theta borderline in between that. So monks that have been meditating for 30 years, yeah. meditation, people can meditate really well, get their brainwaves into that state. Um, but there's a difference because flow is more of an action-orientated. Meditation to... is a, a, a non-movement mm-hmm. sort of exercise. Um, so when we hit these special moments, so in training it you've got to optimize the physiology of the physiology mm-hmm. of somebody so um and then we also got to take care of the nervous system the nervous system's got to be at a, at a certain point yeah because if you're too aroused too stressed and all these things you it's going to block you from getting to flow because it's going to the, the neurochemistry that gets released in stress and is heightened by our perception of what stress is um does not give us our Say a dopamine, which is our yeah. feel-good chemical, and uh, and these are all focusing chemicals, right? So, if the norepinephrine goes up too high or noradrenaline, 
if we've got that rush and that stress too much, we're not going to, we're going to be so heightened about what's happening. We're going to look for every danger. We're going to look for all the wrong things. We're going to block ourselves from flow. So, um, so are you are you educating people with your new flowcast, as you've called it? Oh, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, are you educating people that? Like, are you teaching them about that, or are you just helping them identify so, and become aware? So, in the flowcast, it's it's about speaking to people about their experience with flow. Okay. So there will be a, an element of education through that. Yeah, because, of course. Um, you know, through my training over the last, in particular this year, and um, and I've got a, another course I'm doing with the Flow Research Collective starting next week which actually um, gives me more um, skills around how to actually effectively train flow um, is is that we've got to – I kind of lost where I was at then. I was so in flow. See what happens? <laughs> Love um, it. Your flow cast. What was you your teach flow cast, yeah. So the, there will be an element of education and, yeah. and things like it's that. It's listening to people's stories and inspiring just, people. Yeah, so, so what – what was your moment of peak performance mm-hmm. or rapt attention that led to something phenomenal in your life? Um, and so I've recorded the first four episodes and uh, I'm now in the editing mode where I'll start re- yeah. releasing them over the next couple of weeks. So there's an element of education, but also just a, a level of, I think, more awareness, like listening to other people's stories around what their moment of greatness or what it feels like to them will help create that awareness in others to go, oh, is it kind of like what I feel when I'm baking cookies? I, time, you know, three hours goes by like that. Yeah, 100%. And I don't feel any pain. I don't feel, I'm not even aware of myself at yeah. that point. I'm just one thing flows into the other and next thing I know I've got these cookies. And um, so There's a different type of cookie around. that does that as well, but let's not go. Well, there's, there's, a, there's a whole <laughs> there's a whole cookie uh, discussion around that that actually can help facilitate all that even quicker. But, what but I we're all hardwired for it, and that's and it's a phenomenal place. But the the thing that excites me about it most is that not only does it enhance performance, but it significantly enhances well being. And it's kind of um, on point with Are You Okay Day today. Yeah. Especially in times of today, we're dealing with COVID and this underlying consistent stress that people are going through, and some people are really struggling a lot more than others, 100%. and can recognise that. Is that the way flow is trained? There's a lot of things in, involved. Like one of my favourite sayings around this from the training I've had is that you you need to, there's a positive psychology Martin Seligman's work around the fundamentals for peak performance. So if you're not looking after your nutrition your hydration, um, practicing mindfulness, practicing gratitude, um, exercising regularly, and having that social support, that uplifting social support where people aren't tearing you down. They're not. They're actually on your side, keen to hear about what you're up to, what are you doing, supporting. You should go. You know that real high level support where you yeah. feel you feel that, which is one of our humanistic needs, a sense of belonging, as opposed to getting knocked down. Tall poppy syndrome and all that. Exactly. Opposite. Um, If you don't have those things in place and you don't have a a daily and almost what I call recovery stack with those things in place, you can't do peak performance because if you're not hydrated, your brain's going to be underperforming. If you're not eating well, your your brain and your body is going to underperform. It's not going to give you the energy required for you to get into flow. It's a very taxing experience on your your system. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, 
and if you're not practicing mindfulness to be able to to, to know when your neurobiology or your neurochemistry is spiking too high on the stress levels and how do you bring that down you know so you got to train yourself in that mindfulness stuff practicing gratitude that trains your brain for optimism to, to look for the positivity in circumstances or to, to hunt for that because our brain is designed to look for danger first and foremost of course what's the negative you know we'll filter nine pieces of negative negative information before we find one positive well, i have to introduce you to black name ryan ryan runs a company called neuro nirvana and what they do is they put gratitude first and they teach people how to be positive about life they turn negative safety briefings in mind sites into positive safety briefings and for people to actually have gratitude towards people you guys would get on like a house on oh, the i'd love to meet him yeah with the whole raptor brain and neurodiversity and all the big words that you said before <laughs> but the thing with it is that i'd love to bring you guys together because i think there's something really cool that we could actually do and we could uh, we could make that happen from the flow side of things to the neuro nirvana piece that he's playing with yeah and this whole wellness piece mate there's so much need for it as we mentioned at the start like it's, the yeah. amount of suicide and stuff that's out there today it's just fucked up it's that simple like there's, yeah. there's stats out there at the moment that three people died of COVID and 21 died of suicide. You haven't heard one word about the suicide side yeah. of things. Yeah. It's just not on. And there's going to be people like yourself and like Ryan and those people in the world that can actually teach us to be grateful. Yeah. And and and, and to be, I'll be straight up honest, like this is practicing these things have, you know, if I had these practices in place as an athlete, yeah. you know, like, um, and the understanding of unpacking my my own shit, um, the effects that being bullied had on me, the way it actually drove me to succeed of course. in the area because there was validation involved with becoming a great squash player. If you can teach one kid in school yeah. that's being bullied today to say, look, you can take that, harness it, yeah. and become the number one whatever you want. Yeah, but, but teaching them not that they can harness it, but also how to use it to their advantage authentically, yep. which is I did not know how to do that. Like... Um, and that is a that is one of the things I'm really passionate about. Is that once you get to awareness, going, oh, that's why I behaved so badly in those scenarios or those situations. It's not only that, but going, okay, well, because those things are going to happen. We we got these natural. Our egos have this ability to to be triggered by things. Oh, of course. That, but having the awareness around, okay, I've been triggered. Okay, why? Okay, it's because I'm not. Because this need that I have as a person is not being met. Okay, that makes sense. How can I get that need from this moment? So I let's say take a belonging, for example, or validation. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm not being validated. I'm putting all this work into my flow business, but I'm not getting as many signups as I thought or yeah. as much things. And, and you can sit there and go, oh, and then you can get, you can take that the wrong way or you can go, that's cool. So how do I validate myself in this? Okay, you've taken a step forward. You've taken action today. You got this one awesome. time. You may not have got ten, but you got one at least. Yeah. So hundred percent. It's it's again. So and then flipping that. So practicing gratitude helps you look for that. Today I went on and did a podcast. Today I went and did this. Today I started my flowcast. Well, today podcast, I went and did this. Of course, so absolutely. Bit, yeah. To my experience to date, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I don't know. There's so much. Um, so it's well, I'm training looking forward flow, to learning this and, stuff, right? And so for us to learn this, we need to then obviously reach out to you because you're you're going to become the flow king, king of flow. King of flow. <laughs> king of flow. We'll write a song about that. But 
how do people reach out to you? How do people find you? Well, I'm mostly active on Instagram at the moment with mm. um, at Paul Price Performance. Paul Price Performance. Yeah, and then All my the P's. Um, yeah. Um, so my 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 business name is Inspired Peak Performance. Yep. And uh, the website is inspiredpeakperformance.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and the flowcast will be coming hopefully in the first week of October. Yep. And not far away. So so I'm about to launch a um, a couple of different flow programs, group programs online, and also do one-on-one um, sessions as well. And I'm very keen to bring this into organizations as well because I think organizations have a an ability to uh, impact the masses. 100%. You have a leadership um, quality. And, and if you think about the benefits from a performance standpoint in flow with productivity, you know, we're 500% more productive when we're in flow. Our creativity is spiked by about 490%. Our problem solving is is drastically heightened. Um, we're more, we have more empathy, there's more deep connection and more trust in these states. And these, and these, this feel good, feel good ne- uh, chemistry that comes from being in flow can last you for days. But there's also there's strategies around. You've got to recover from oh, it as well. Of course, it's going to be, ta- be taxing as well. Yeah. So, um, so organizations implementing, I believe, embedding a culture of flow in your organization is not going to be only great for the KPIs on the on the financial statements and from a from a board level, but you're going to have a group of people coming into work that are truly lit up and excited about being there. They're going to connect deeper. They're going to perform better, and they're going to go home happier to their families. They're going to be better husbands, better wives, better sons and daughters, and better people in general. And if we've got a, a group of people that um, are lit up like that, really passionate about what they're doing, how they're doing, the impact they're making. Imagine the problems that we can solve in the world from all that, you know, epicness and positivity. Epicness, love it. So, Bang, that's so, that's wicked, mate. So, and so it's an upswing. Flow will increase your performance. It'll up. It'll help your people increase their well-being um, and hopefully have an overall impact on. The, you know, as you said, the situation we find ourselves with suicide on the on the uprise, things like this. It doesn't take a hell of a lot to to change that momentum, as you said at the start. You know, just by reaching out to somebody. Right. So, are you okay, Day? Let's ask people if they're okay. Um, so you, know, you can you can make a big difference in a in a short phone call in a short amount of time, but but also just encouraging people to follow their fucking dreams, hundred percent, go after what lights them up. That changes everything. So the way I love to finish my podcast, quick fire questions. Ready? All righty. Greatest achievement in life? My daughter. Person who's had the biggest influence on your life? My parents, by far. Favorite food? Oh, pizza. Favorite song? I have to go with Black by Pearl Jam. Favorite place in the world? Um... New York City. I love New York City. So good. What a great place. It's just there's just electricity in the air. It's I used just to, New York City. I played <laughs> I played I played a lot of squash there and it was one of those places that I loved to go and play, but I, I hated to play there because I could never sleep. You can't sleep in New York City. There's too much going on. You just know. Too much magnetic it's just power outside that you just know just outside that window there's something freaking awesome is happening. Um, and that's yeah, it was, I love it. 
Mate, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. From what we've heard and what you're going to do in the future to change people's lives makes you an awesome human. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brett. I appreciate it and uh, love what you're doing here. Thanks Cheers, for having buddy. me on. Thanks. What an amazing human. Thank you so much for listening today. I really hope that you enjoy the rest of the Podfire podcasts and I really hope that you enjoyed Awesome Humans. Reach out to us on Podfire and all the social media channels as well as BJ Macker uh, to reach out to me personally. Have a great day.